The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the topic of Hashimoto's thyroiditis. We go deep with Dr. Amy Gajar. Amy opens up about the thyroid gland and Hashimoto's thyroid disease. Why are you wondering is she saying Hashimoto? Well, because Hashimoto, Dr. Hashimoto, was Japanese and I just love saying Hashimoto. I have always wondered why Hashimoto's can cause brain fog and Amy explains why. She also explains a lot of other things related to the thyroid and Hashimoto's disease. A little bit about Dr. Amy Gajar. Dr. Amy is a truly integrative physician, GP, combining functional medicine, coaching, yoga, and Ayurvedic lifestyle. She trained at the Imperial College School of Medicine in London and worked as a GP for several years. In Sydney, she has undergone extensive further training and is a fellow of the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine, Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine, and a board-certified lifestyle medicine physician. Her main interests are thyroid disease, gut health, and autoimmunity. Dr. Amy currently works at the Holistic Medical Centre, Surrey Hills in Sydney. She is also a registered yoga teacher and teaches at the Sydney Yoga Collective, Bondi Junction. Dr. Amy is a lecturer and also enjoys presenting at community workshops, seminars, and retreats. She is a medical advisor to Dance Health Alliance, a non-for-profit organization that facilitates dance programs to improve quality of life and mind-body balance for people with neurological conditions such as dementia and multiple sclerosis. Dr. Amy also enjoys writing and is currently working on her first book on healing Hashimoto's. So what better person to speak to on this topic than Dr. Amy Gajar? I hope you enjoy our chat. Dr. Amy Gajar, welcome to the Fanny Mechanic Show. Thank you, Dr. Tash, for having me. Thank you for coming on and talking about Hashimoto, Hashimoto's <laughs> thyroiditis or disease. I just love saying that in a, in my best it's, Japanese accent. <laughs> it's the perfect pronunciation. It's the best one I've heard. So, <laughs> so you have a lot of interests. Uh, what made you most interested in thyroid at the moment at this point in your life? Because you're writing a book about thyroid and Hashimoto's. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I've decided to write my first book. I've always wanted to write a book and I – I'm finally taking the initiative to do it. And, yeah, interesting, the interest in thyroid, it, it came about quite organically, um, especially as I entered the world of integrative medicine um, and how I was seeing patients who, you know, had been diagnosed with hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's and were still feeling symptomatic and the thyroxine wasn't always enough to control their symptoms. And that sort of led me to look more into it and, and I was doing obviously more training in nutritional and environmental medicine and and uh, really started to explore the topic in more detail and realise how common it is and also how disturbingly um, many patients are not diagnosed or treated adequately in conventional medicine, um, which means that women especially, because this affects much more women than, than men in a 10 to 1 ratio, um, you know, many women still feeling quite symptomatic despite therapy or they haven't been diagnosed. So what is the big deal about the thyroid? Actually, before we go into why it's so important, can you explain to our listeners where it is, where it sits in our bodies? So the thyroid gland, it sits in the neck. It's about an ounce in weight and it comes from uh, the word thyros, which is a Greek word for shield. And as we know, we develop from one cell. Everything affects everything in the body, and the thyroid gland affects many other organs, and it itself is also affected by, by other organs and glands as well. So you know, some of its functions include governing the basal metabolic rate, regulating cellular metabolism, um, increasing mitochondrial number and function, temperature regulation, protein synthesis, growth and development, including especially fetal and infancy, uh, lipid breakdown, cholesterol excretion in the bile, and also upregulation of neurotransmitters. So multiple functions and 
that also helps us to see why people can have so many different symptoms and it's not always obvious. Obviously, there's a cluster that, that we know about um, as, as GPs, as doctors, of what are thyroid symptoms, but that doesn't always necessarily get, get picked up initially. So what actual hormones does the thyroid make? Yeah, so the main thyroid hormone made is T4, which is thyroxine. So 90% of what the thyroid gland makes is, is T4 and 10% is T3. T4, however, is the least physiologically active. And some of that actually gets converted into the T3, which is the most uh, physiologically active hormone. There's actually about a dozen thyroid hormones, but the T4 and T3 are the main ones. And what's also interesting is that given that T4 is the least active, that conversion from T4 to T3 happens mainly outside the thyroid gland. In fact, 80% of that T4 to T3 conversion happens in the liver and as well as other peripheral tissues like, like the kidneys as well. So Hence the importance of looking at the whole system, the whole body, not just what's going on in the thyroid glands. And I often say to patients, you know, think of the thyroid gland as a thermostat. It's responding to other things going on in the body, what's going on. Mm, I love and, that. And when it comes to Hashimoto's, um, the, the gut is, is a primary um, part to look at because about a fifth of the thyroid hormone is actually also made in the gut. And we also need thyroid hormone for gut function. So there's a, a gut thyroid axis as there is an adrenal thyroid axis. So really important to look at the, the whole system. And that's, as we know, it's not conventional thinking. Um, you know, as we know that when somebody's diagnosed with hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, it's either monitoring depending on what the actual levels are or it's treatment with thyroxine, which for many people may be sufficient, but we can see that there are many reasons as to why that might may not be enough for some people as well. So you mentioned the liver earlier, and yeah. uh, is that why patients who have high cholesterol may have thyroid dysfunction? Does thyroid dysfunction cause high cholesterol? I've read that before. If I read incorrectly yes. or correctly? Yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. So often, again, you know, and then other other clues in the history can include that they've had you know, high cholesterol in the past, or they've had a cholecystectomy, which is a gallbladder removal. And that, that can also then increase their risk of, of hypothyroidism as well, because the, 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 the production of the hormones and the, the liver and gallbladder are all interrelated as well. Wow, that's fascinating. And what part of the cholesterol profile is affected by thyroid dysfunction or the thyroid? Like when you're looking yeah. at a, at a, at a, at a uh, cholesterol profile, as you as most listeners will probably know, there's different aspects to that. Is there anything yeah. in, in particular that we need to be looking at to get a hint of thyroid issues? Gen generally, we, we do find that it is the total cholesterol that's involved, so not so much triglycerides, but it's more, more the total cholesterol. Yeah, so even in, the, even in the absence of a family history, sometimes th th that can be raised. And um, obviously, if we, we, it's important to diagnose that because, because we don't want necessarily someone being put on a statin if it's not necessary, if we can correct any underlying associated thyroid issues, then we can alleviate the need for additional medications such as statins. So what are the common symptoms of Hashimoto's? Let's, yeah, let's, so, let's, let's stick to women because, you know, it's mostly women that are listening to this podcast, I think. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about and mostly women who get Hashimoto's. So yeah. symptoms of Hashimoto's in a woman. Yeah, so fatigue is a very, very common one that we're seeing. Um, and the other common ones are difficulty losing weight or weight gain or doing all the right things like the right diet, the right exercise, but still not losing weight. Depression and anxiety are actually both common. Uh, cognitive symptoms like brain fog and slow thinking and sluggishness are common as well. And that's interesting in that it's, it's also now known that the antibodies in, in Hashimoto's also um, affect and attack parts of the brain as well. And, and that's why there are cognitive symptoms associated with Hashimoto's. And there's also a general slowing down. So then there's more likely to be constipation and sluggish bowels, you know, lack of motivation, dry skin, dry hair, hair loss because the peripheral circulation is affected, cold hands, cold feet are, are quite common, um, low body temperatures feeling cold, sometimes 
difficulty recovering from exercise longer than necessary. So people may do some exercise in the morning and feel that they, they feel quite wiped out or achy for, for, for the rest of the day. And that's not normal. Um, also needing more sleep than normal, headaches. Um, there can also be you know, poor immunity and recurrent infections, also low libido because the other hormones are affected as well. Um, and there may be menstrual problems, often heavy painful periods, infertility, recurrent miscarriages as well. And um, so, yeah, so a wide range of symptoms. And, you know, if we can put them all together, um, which and I think part of the difficulty in diagnosing and especially going back to my days of working in a GP setting where we're seeing patients every 10 minutes and it's, you know, one problem, one appointment, it, it's easy to see how we can miss a diagnosis of this or in fact anything if, if we don't pay attention to all the symptoms and look at them collectively. Yeah, I mean, how many women suffer from those problems? I could imagine most women going into a gynecologist's office would have at least one of those symptoms. Yeah, so, yeah, very, very common, mm. yeah. And I, I didn't know that antibodies actually affect the brain. How do they do yeah. that? What that latch onto yeah. a glial cell or something? What happens there? Yeah, so the um, the, the, the cerebellum is, is one of the first parts of the, of the brain to be involved. And interestingly, there's also recent research where, uh, so for, for example, tinnitus is actually a common symptom in Hashimoto's. And there was a recent paper where the antibodies were shown to actually affect the inner ear, the cochlear as well, which would explain why patients with Hashimoto's often have tinnitus. So, so yeah, there's more and more research coming out around how you know, different different organs are being affected, but yeah, it's quite quite interesting. So, is it is it more common now, or we're just better at diagnosing it? I'd say it's definitely definitely more common, and and we are also diagnosing it um, using the the antibody test. But I'd say generally speaking, autoimmune conditions and Hashimoto's is the most common autoimmune condition because the thyroid gland is so sensitive. It's often one of the first glands or to be affected. And um, it's like, you know, the, the canary in the coal mine. It's 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 one of the, the those first sort of ones that that's sort of sensitive to environmental factors. Generally speaking, I'd say yeah, there's a combination of lifestyle and environmental factors as to why there's an increased prevalence of autoimmune conditions, including Hashimoto's. And so, can you explain the common tests that a doctor should be ordering? Uh, I, I a common a common comment that given to me by my patients is I asked my GP to run a thyroid panel and they only wanted to do a TSH. They didn't want to do any of the other tests. Uh, yeah. You as a GP, uh, Dr. Gajar, can you please comment yeah. on that? <laughs> yeah. So the TSH is the thyroid stimulating hormone, which is actually a pituitary hormone, not a thyroid hormone, um, which is important to bear in mind. That is the, 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 the test for, for diagnosing thyroid issues. The Medicare regulations are that if the TSH is in the, is in the normal range, then there is no further indication to do any testing. And that's where part of the problem lies because there are many factors that affect the TSH level. So generally speaking, as we know, the higher the TSH level is, the more underactive the thyroid is because the, the pituitary is trying to make more TSH to stimulate the thyroid gland to make more of the T4 and T3. But factors such as cortisol, so stress, illness, starvation, they can all depress the, T, uh, the, the TSH. So what we're seeing today is certainly a, a lot of stress, high cortisol levels. They will reduce the, the TRH, which is thyroid treatment releasing hormone from the hypothalamus, and they'll also reduce the CRH, and so as a result, you have a suppressed TSH. So in those cases, someone can have a high end of normal TSH or quite normal around sort of one to two, yet they can still have thyroid symptoms. So that's where the difficulty there lies. And then there are also cases where someone can have totally normal TSH, T3 and T4, even if they have been done. But it's not until we actually do the thyroid antibody test, especially the TPO, <clears throat> that we can diagnose Hashimoto's. And again, that's not a routine test, but if we have clinical suspicion, then that is justification to request those tests. Mm. 
I mean, as a fertility specialist, I order thyroid antibodies on every woman who comes through. Uh, am I doing the wrong thing? I think that's totally adequate. Yeah, I think I think it's it's certainly with with the sort of cases that you'd be seeing totally relevant because we know there is an association with with uh, with with the Hashimoto's and infertility, and you know that that's something that, that we see a lot of as well that people have had that history, and then have been diagnosed on further testing. So you talked about TSH levels and uh, is there an optimal level uh, for a woman who's trying to conceive? What is the optimal yeah. level? Yeah, so generally speaking, I would say 0.4 to 2.5 is, is a normal. Um, in terms of the guidelines, it's suggested that in pregnancy, the TSH is less than 2.5. Um, however, in, in a, a publication which, which was in the Indian College uh, of Obstetricians, they actually recommended a TSH of less than 2. So in pregnancy, the, the binding protein can actually increase. So most people who are hypothyroid will, will need to increase any, any thyroxine dose by about 45%. And that's what's, what was found in the study. So two is what they had recommended, but other guidelines suggest 2.5. And, and it's important to control that because we, we know there's, there's an increased risk of miscarriage and other neurocognitive um, issues in the fetus if, 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 if the uh, thyroid is adequately controlled. Mm, lower IQs. I remember when that yeah. came out, that was a big thing. Lower IQs in children who um, whose mothers had untreated thyroid um, issues. Yeah. The, the TBG, the thyroid blinding globulin, it does go up, and and that, that's in, in this particular publication by the uh, Indian College of Obstetricians, they recommended that the TSH is kept to less than two, and that women may need to increase their dose by even about forty five percent. Forty five percent. Yeah, mm. yeah, in that particular paper. I love yeah. that they say 45%, not 50% or 30% <laughs> or 40%. It's 45% because it's, you know, so much easier to work out 45%. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, doing the tests, when should I be testing someone? In the morning, in the in midday, evening? When is the best time to do your thyroid function tests? And does this time vary with the seasons? Yeah, so generally speaking, the, the thyroid testing is done first thing in the morning. Um, I think it's important to be consistent whenever it's done in, in someone. So um, I usually advise the patient to do it, you know, ideally first thing in the morning with, with, with some water, but no other sort of medications or supplements. Um, and it can vary with, with the menstrual cycle. Um, so, yeah, so there are other variations as well. But I think if, if it's consistent for that person, and morning is, is when most people uh, request it. So they can do it in the morning after they've had their thyroid medication? I you It can be done after that, but I, I generally do it sort of fasting with, mm -hmm. with, with nothing at all. So with yeah. no meds? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And is yeah. that important to put on the actual um, form that you send a patient off with to say, yeah. you know, this test was ordered yeah. without medication on board in the morning? Is that is that important to do, you think? Yeah, yeah, and, and main thing is also just to tell the patient. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Amy, how does taking medication reduce antibody levels? That's what I get mystified by. Yeah. Is it supposed to reduce the antibody levels? Is that what we're looking for? So in, in Hashimoto's, it won't necessarily reduce the antibodies per se. It will certainly help to correct the actual levels of T4 and T3. But with, with anything autoimmune, which implies inflammation and oxidative stress, it's important to deal with those in that person. So medication may not directly reduce that. Mm. What other inflammatory but, markers should we be looking at on blood tests? Yeah, so the, the antibody levels are definitely helpful and, and, and they can be used for monitoring, even though some of the guidelines do, do say that it's for diagnostic purposes, but certainly clinically, you know, from a functional integral point of view, they can be very helpful in assessing progress. Other inflammatory markers include the high sensitivity CRP, so HSCRP, and liver markers can actually be quite helpful as well. So sometimes if, for example, the GGT is erased, in the absence of not too much alcohol, a high GGT can actually imply inflammation as well and also reduce levels of glutathione, which is our main antioxidant. So there are these other little clues that we can use as well. Is that why taking things like NAC and glutathione are good for Hashimoto's? Yes, 
Definitely, yes. NAC converts to glutathione, it needs selenium. Mm. And selenium, again, very important. Selenium has been shown to also reduce the antibodies as well. Yeah, I often tell patients to eat a couple of Brazil nuts every day, provided yeah. that the yeah. Brazil nuts are not from New Zealand or China because apparently the soil there is, is selenium deplete. But can you can yeah. you talk more on that? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so generally speaking, um, again, even with a, a very good diet, it can it can be the case that we don't have enough nutrients because, again, studies have shown, you know, in, in many countries that the soil isn't as rich in nutrients as it used to be. Um, so, you know, measuring what we can measure is, is useful. And so we can measure things like zinc and selenium uh, in, in, in the blood. And that, that can, can be a guide. And, yeah, generally, I, I do advise that, you know, especially with Hashimoto's, that, that we, we use those nutrients and certainly in, improving the intake of those in the diet. So, for example, with selenium, it's Brazil nuts, but also garlic and onion. Uh, zinc is rich in, for example, you know, oysters and pumpkin seeds and sunflower seeds. So it's important to get good bioavailable sources of iron within the diet and then <clears throat> and then supplement as appropriate. And there's certainly sufficient evidence around selenium reducing the antibodies in Hashimoto's, but also selenium helping with the Graves disease, which is the opposite. Um, and zinc has been also been shown to improve the T3 and T4 levels as well. Mm. So there's been a lot of research on that. Also magnesium um, has also um, been shown to help with, with improving the T3, T4 levels and also the antibodies as well. So a lot of good research around a lot of those nutrients, vitamin D, certain B vitamins, optimizing the iron, for example. You know, we want a good level of iron as well. Um, and again, as we know, that that can be quite low in a lot of women who may have menstrual issues. So it's important to optimize that as well. So um, always the diet first, measuring what is appropriate and what can be done, and then and then supplementing appropriately. Some people, uh, when they take their medication, forget in the mornings, uh, is or it's a hassle because they often have to take it before they eat. And uh, is, is taking it at night okay? The thyroxine? Yeah. Generally, morning is, is best. And, you know, sometimes it, it can affect some people's sleep. But I, I would say, I mean, it has got a long half-life. So theoretically, it, it wouldn't matter. But mo I would suggest that most women take that in, well, or most people take that in the morning. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what exactly is Hashimoto? So why do people actually develop it? Is it genes, environment, or sustained autoimmune response? What What is it? Why does it happen? Yeah. yeah. So a combination of both genetics and environment. So there's that phrase we've heard, you know, genes load the gun, environment pulls the trigger. So often there is a, a genetic susceptibility and having the celiac gene even if they may not have celiac disease, seems to be quite common in a lot of patients with Hashimoto's. And in fact, there have been studies where people with celiac disease had a higher risk of developing Hashimoto's as well. Um, so there's usually some genetic susceptibilities and there would be also other relevant genes as well, but the, the celiac gene is, is a common one that, that we tend to see. And there's often a family history of Hashimoto's or other autoimmune conditions in the family as well. So it's important to sort of note all that. And then in terms of the um, environmental factors, a lot of the lifestyle factors are very important as well and, and relevant in today's society. Um, there's what's also known as the autoimmune triad. So Dr. Alessio Fasano, who's a, a gastroenterologist who did a lot of the work on celiac disease and and he discovered zonulin, which is that, that sort of marker of leaky gut or intestinal hyperpermeability. Um, he talks about the autoimmune triad, which is, you know, firstly, it's having the genetic susceptibility. So in, in that case, it was the celiac gene. Secondly, it was, was a microbiome. And third factor was gluten. So all of those factors are important. In terms of the lifestyle factors, so in terms of diet, there are studies that have shown that gluten restriction and elimination reduce antibodies. Now, that's not to say that someone with an, an autoimmune condition needs to be off gluten forever, unless, of course, you, you've got celiac disease. But even with Hashimoto's or other autoimmune conditions, most people do very well by eliminating gluten and dairy. And gluten and dairy because there's cross-reactivity and molecular mimicry there as well um, with the similar protein structures. Um, so that is often a first starting point in, in trying to help to reduce the inflammation and 
a step towards gut healing. Um, in terms of what we see now, again, stress, we know stress directly impacts leaky gut or intestinal permeability as well. It reduces IgA, which is our main sort of antibody in the gut, um, and it increases inflammation as well. So stress management is, is really important. It's probably the hardest to do. Um, Exercise-wise, again, it's all about having balance, and we often see, you know, many women exercising too much in trying to do the right thing, but too much can be unfortunately counterproductive because more exercise is also more stress and more cortisol and more inflammation to the body as well. So it can be actually counterproductive doing too much exercise. We, on the other hand, don't want to be sitting around too much because, as they say, sitting is new smoking, mm. and that can be pro-inflammatory pro in itself. So it's getting the right balance when it comes to exercise as well. Sleep absolutely is medicine. Um, I love this phrase by Professor Matthew Walker, who's a sleep researcher in the States, and he says sleep is the tide that raises all the other health boats. And often clinically if there's a lot of things to change in someone's lifestyle, I'm often even starting with sleep and getting sleep right because a lot of things can, can follow on from there. We can reduce inflammation when we get sufficient sleep. We can get the hormonal balancing happening, reducing the cortisol. So all those lifestyle factors are very important. And last but not least, certainly toxins and heavy metals and that we're seeing a lot more of these days. So, you know, we're now exposed to so many more chemicals than we ever have been. Um, they say that by the time a woman's had her morning coffee, we've been exposed to at least a few hundred, maybe three, four hundred chemicals, and ma mainly in perfume, if someone wears perfume, um, and cosmetics and skincare, you know, metals, they, they all have an effect on autoimmunity and increasing inflammation as well. There's also some research around um, adjuvants. So this is an acronym coined by an immunology researcher, Professor Schoenfeld in Israel, um, Asia, which is autoimmune syndrome induced by adjuvants. So adjuvants are things like aluminium, mercury, titanium, silicon, that are used in everyday medical, dental, and cosmetic procedures that have been shown to be linked to autoimmunity. And we use them um, in the kitchen, don't we, all those things, aluminium, yeah. silicon, wow. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and plastics, you know, again, a big one these days. Um, for example, a coffee, a takeaway coffee cup, you know, the inside lining, there's a you know, very thin lining of plastic. The lid is plastic. And that's when there's hot, acidic coffee in there, that will leach out. So it sounds little, but what, what we know about toxins and metals is that you know, tiny amounts of different ones when they come together have a synergistic effect. And uh, interestingly, BPA is chemically similar to T3. So plastic avoidance and also avoiding the parabens and the phthalates, you know, which are all now known to be endocrine disruptors, is really important for improving uh, Hashimoto's and reducing the risk of getting any other autoimmune illness as well. So why is it that the body actually makes T4 and T3? Um, I, I was trying to make sense of it and I was reading somewhere that T4 is a bit like the money you have in the bank and T3 is what is what money you have in your wallet. Um, yeah. Can you expand on that? So I guess it's in, in terms of potential activity. So T4 is the main hormone produced. Um, which is tyrosine and four iodine molecules, and that that is the least physiologically active, and that is then converted to T3, which is the tyrosine and three three iodine molecules, and and that's the most physiologically active. Um, and T3 we, we know helps to upregulate neurotransmitters and basal metabolic rates, etc. So it's the the body is keeping those in a in a generally a four to one ratio, um, and again assessing. T3, T4, TSH levels. In times of, of stress, what happens is that if we, for example, don't have enough nutrients, such as selenium, iodine, magnesium, zinc, vitamin D, B vitamins, and we have too much factors that can inhibit the conversion of the T4 to T3, such as high stress and cortisol, heavy metals, um, and gut dysbiosis, then the body in perceiving this stress, regardless of where this stress is coming from, whether it's toxins or emotional, 
the T4 starts to get converted to more reverse T3. So this is the mirror image of T3, but it's chemically inactive. So it binds to the T3 receptors, but it's like a break on the system. And it's, it's actually a hibernational signal in mammals where you know it's saying okay it's too much stress it's, it's time to it's time to slow down and, and that's clinically also what we see that when there's a lot of stress you see higher levels of reverse t3 being made and that that is something that can be measured it's it's a private test um it's not a conventionally ordered one but it can be useful in diagnosing what's going on and it will certainly explain why if someone is on thyroxine that they they it may not be enough and why they're still symptomatic because that reverse T3 is literally acting as a break and the T3 isn't able to enter the cells. That's really hence interesting. Affecting, uh, hence affecting mitochondrial function. And again, there are, there are studies on reverse T3, high levels and reduced mitochondrial function as well. So it's important to get that reverse T3 down. But if you imagine there's like, um, if you imagine the T4 to T3 is a, is a highway, if we have a block there, giving more T4 thyroxine isn't necessarily going to improve things if we haven't addressed the factors, i.e. the nutrients that that production line needs or the factors that inhibit that conversion, like, like the stress and toxins. Um, so clinically, sometimes the way we see that is if the thyroxine doses increase and the women actually start to feel worse because that would put, potentially increase the reverse C3 or be more like a break on the system. Or, you know, they may notice that they're just feeling more tired or their weight's actually going up, not down. And, and that's where it's important to really address what's going on and get to the root causes because thyroxine, in this case, of increasing the dose isn't enough. So does the and reverse T3 speak to other cells in the body? Does it signal to other systems in the body that something's going on? What, what is yes, its actual it role? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a protective mechanism. Um, so we, we often it, it can also be high in someone who's, is, who's at the other end in hyperthyroidism. So it's it's about, about about controlling, I guess you know if, if we look at it from a survival evolutionary point of view, it's a it's about controlling the body's resources. Wow, it's fascinating the thyroid. It is a little complex structure. It is, yeah. There's still still lots to learn about it, and <laughs> still lots more research to do for the book. <laughs> so, when when do you or should you order a thyroid ultrasound? I mean, obviously you would examine someone's neck. What are you looking for yeah. when you're doing a thyroid exam? Yeah, so sometimes they can be a, a mass or, or a goiter. Sometimes they, they can be uh, palpable nodules as well. So certainly if there is anything there or, or um, you know, then there's definitely an indication to, to do a thyroid ultrasound. And, you know, it's also worth asking the patient if they've got symptoms like, you know, any sort of difficulty swelling or actually any, any pain in that region because, you know, that might obviously represent the thyroiditis as well. So, um and also, I mean, there's some cases where, where, where people have had thyroid cancer and are on on, uh, on on medication. If we look back at their history, they may have had Hashimoto's. And we have to remember that Hashimoto's is a pro-inflammatory state, which can also lead to cancer. So it, I tend to probably have a lower threshold for doing scans because of some of the things, you know, I, I, I have seen over the years. So um, um, it's interesting because, yeah, as gynecologists, we have a low threshold for doing a pelvic ultrasound. Should the same yeah. apply for thyroid if, if, you know, God, if Hashimoto's is a chronic inflammatory condition affecting the thyroid and can lead or is associated with thyroid cancer, I'm surprised most or more people don't have thyroid ultrasounds. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, for me clinically, it, it was, you know, having picked up a few uh, papillary carcinomas, which is a common thyroid cancer in people who had a history of hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's and because that, that diagnosis was was, ma was made later rather than earlier, um, I, yeah, I, I tend to have that lower threshold. Uh, but it's not in the guidelines per se. The, the guidelines are, are more in, in lines with, you know, palpable nodules or goiter as an indication to do the scan. But, Is that because yeah, thyroid nodules are also so very common? Uh, yeah, a, a very common, common finding, yeah. and then it might cause um, unexplained. Well, une, un, what's the word? What I'm trying. What am I trying to say? Um, it it would cause anxiety in patients for no real reason. Yeah, 
Yeah, and and yeah, m- many of the nodules they, they can just be you know very very small. If if they're over a certain size, then then that's when when they biopsy just to 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 make sure. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's important to, to sort of keep an eye on. And even if people do have nodules, it's still important for them to get r- routine scans just to just to assess progress as, as well. Mm. And yeah. recommending people who have Hashimoto's or even if they don't have Hashimoto's to do regular thyroid. Um, checks just to fill their thyroids as they do, say, their breasts or their testicles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's certainly any 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 discomfort, you know, any any sort of you know sort of pain or discomfort or um, any sort of any anything that that's new, like in in terms of nodules or if they notice that their their sort of neck is a little bit larger, I think it's it's worth is it, yeah, it's definitely worth um, paying attention to that. And you mentioned earlier autoimmune conditions and obviously Hashimoto's is one of those, um, but what other common Hashimoto's or uh, autoimmune conditions are associated with Hashimoto's? You mentioned celiac earlier. Yeah, uh, yeah. Anything else? Yeah, yeah so m- many other ones. Um, and I think I think you also if you bear in mind that when it comes to autoimmunity, there's a lot of similar pathology going on and obviously the, the gut microbiome and gut dysbiosis, which is an imbalance in the good and bad bacteria. Is, is an important one there. So certainly with celiac disease, the studies have have found that people with celiac disease had a high prevalence of developing Hashimoto's, but we also see Hashimoto's in people who, who have, say, type 1 diabetes uh, and rheumatoid arthritis as well, as well as colitis and Crohn's. There's a lot of common ground, which, um, and again, going back to diagnosing um, Hashimoto's or any autoimmune condition, it's it's also important to do screening for other autoimmune conditions at the same time as well because if if someone has one they are more likely to have another one so again it's important to take that relevant history and and do do the appropriate testing there as well um, and the other thing is Hashimoto's it seems it definitely is getting more common but I'm seeing in younger and younger people I've got a young teenager with a history of type 1 diabetes who's developed Hashimoto's. So we're seeing it in, in younger and younger girls as well, mm. which is disturbing. Okay. So should we be checking <clears throat> more younger girls? Because I see quite a lot of younger girls, teenagers, who come in with heavy periods. And yeah. I don't often think of thyroid straight away. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, prescription medications or supplements or vitamins that, can influence thyroid hormone levels. Yeah. Can you comment yeah. on that? Is there anything we yes. need to be looking out for? So, so the conventional treatment is thyroxine, which is which is T4. Um, but as we know, it's got to get converted to T3. So, if 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 there are issues converting that because of you know not not enough nutrients and and the factors that inhibit that conversion, like like the stress and the toxins, uh, or if people have a genetic defect in the enzyme called 5-primer deiodinase, which converts the T4 to T3, then, then that thyroxine may not be as helpful as it could be, which would explain why some women uh, need, need more than thyroxine. T3 is, is also available, and, uh, and now you know the American College of uh, Endocrinologists and the American Thyroid Association, for example, they actually do state now that if, if monotherapy with thyroxine is insufficient, then T3 can be used. So that would be um, and, and is a common sort of a second line of medication as well. Um, T4 has been around since the 1920s. In the functional integrative world, um, especially in the US here, in the UK as well, there's also natural desiccated thyroid that's used. So it's not in the in the actual official guidelines and it's not advocated as a as a, as a medication, but this has been used um, for, for, for many years and it was in the US pharmacopoeia since uh, the 1900s. And it was actually used as treatment before thyroxine became available in the market. Because it's from um, pigs, isn't it? Pigs and cows? It's pigs and yes, cow like, yeah. thyroid scrunched yeah. up. Um, yeah. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. Yeah, so it's um, yeah, it's, it's a natural desiccated thyroid, also known as a sort of armor thyroid here, which is uh, made by the compounding pharmacy. So it naturally has a T4, T3, but also, you know, there are other thyroid hormones and obviously within that thyroid gland extract there would be other minerals that are needed as well so um many people who don't benefit from t4 or a combination of t4 and t3 often do benefit from ndt but as i said that's not a conventional treatment um 
and would only be prescribed by uh, some practitioners. But certainly clinically, many people do well on that. What are the other names for T3? Triiodothyronine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I suppose because so, I've only I only really put people on thyroxine. Uh, if they have any major thyroid issues, I send them to a, a clinical endocrinologist. So, yes, yeah, so a T3 is, is available and, and it can be prescribed by practitioners. So, so that, that's available as a conventional medicine. It doesn't have to be compounded. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, are there any supplements that someone shouldn't take when they are on medication for their thyroid? Iodine is a controversial one. So now we need iodine because when we talk about T4 and T3, that's referring to three and four iodine molecules together with the tyrosine, which is the amino acid, to make it that thyroid hormone. So we certainly need iodine and we also need iodine for breasts and ovaries as well. Um, So we need enough of it. But some studies have suggested that too much iodine can actually worsen or even uh, cause Hashimoto's as well. So it's something that I'd I'd advise people to be mindful of in terms of, especially if they've got Hashimoto's, um, because there there can be some oxidation involved when iodine is given. I, I would normally pair that with selenium, which acts as an antioxidant, and that can help to reduce the the you know mitigate the the effects of that excess oxidation caused by too mm. much iodine. But again, it it is a very you know, there are mixed opinions on that. And I, I tend to be conservative about the iodine. I would measure it first. And if someone needs it, then then, then use it with caution. Um, and How do and, you measure th- um, iodine? Do you yeah, a, a so urine it, spot iodine? Yeah, so you can do a urine spot iodine, which uh, you can also do a 24-hour one as well. That would be more accurate, but it's it's a bit more cumbersome. And I think for, you know, clinically, practically, a spot urine iodine, which is a private test, is 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 fine. Um, you know, we can also encourage people to have iodine in their diet as well, you know, sort of sort of seafood and iodized salt and everything as well. So, yeah, we need enough, but we don't want to overdo it as well. So, you know, iodine and selenium have narrow therapeutic indexes. And given that the studies have shown that too much iodine can actually worsen thyroid function, we want to just be mindful of that as well. So you'd only give someone <laughs> a supplemental iodine if a test actually showed they're deficient? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And are yeah. vegans and vegetarians more likely to be iodine deficient? Are vegans, vegetarians more likely to have Hashimoto's? I'm not aware of any differences in terms of uh, increased risk of uh, autoimmunity or Hashimoto's in people who are vegan or vegetarian. Okay. And how about things, I mean, you mentioned gluten, that uh, people who are diagnosed with Hashimoto's may benefit by going gluten-free, dairy-free. Yeah. How about soy? Okay. So another another controversial one so again going back to gluten and dairy some some good evidence there and and certainly clinically it seems to certainly help at least in the short term but not necessarily long term so people don't have to do it long term but that said many people find it beneficial to stay off it or just reduce it and they're fine on it um soy again generally it's said to, to 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 avoid that because it can can affect thyroid function um, again, practically though, if people are having a little bit, especially if it's fermented soy like tempeh or natto or miso, it seems to be okay. But with Hashimoto's, even though it's a diagnosis, what we tend to find is that everyone is different. Um, so there's, I wouldn't say there's a necessarily a, a specific standard diet for each person because we also got need to take into account what else is going on and what else may be going on in their gut as well. Um, mm. the, the other thing with soy that, that I find complicated is that you say to someone, you take, are you drink, do you drink soy milk? And they'll say yes. But then when you look at the ingredients in most soy milk products, there's soy yeah. and then there's this all, all this other crap that they add to yeah. it. And you think, well, okay, yeah. could any of that other crap, i.e. a lot of the kind of processed oils that they add, be contributing uh, or kind of um, be confounding factor? You know, what are your yeah. thoughts? Yeah. Definitely. I think preservatives and additives, generally speaking, we, we know that they do affect the gut microbiome. So, again, when it also comes back to gluten and wheat, for example, it's, you know, it's not always even about the, the wheat and, and the, the, the structure there. It's, it's about what else goes into it. So, for example, glyphosate or Roundup, you know, we know that can affect the gut microbiome as well. And interestingly, we, we, we see differences when 
um, you know, people have wheat products in one country and have wheat products when they go to Italy or other places where they're not as bad in terms of their symptoms. So there's certainly a lot in terms of what else is within that product, not necessarily the gluten or wheat itself. And the same certainly would apply to soy as well. Definitely. How about um, Hashimoto's as a marker or even just a woman who comes to see me prenatally planning to fall pregnant or she has infertility, we put her through fertility treatment. In going into that treatment, her TSH levels are normal, but she has thyroid antibodies. What should I be telling her about what may happen postnatally and what to look out for? Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> antibodies generally are also known to be now predictive markers. So we've done a lot of research on other autoimmune conditions as well, such as lupus. And, and what they actually found was that it can often take a decade for someone to develop symptoms, even when they've got antibodies. So let's just say someone is totally well, like in this case, they can be predictive markers. So it's a good opportunity to actually see, okay, what else can we do in the lifestyle? What, what What's triggering the immune system? If you think about you know, the antibodies, the immune system, the fact that most of the immune system is in the gut, it's a great opportunity at that point to start addressing all those lifestyle factors and reduce toxins, stress, optimize sleep, optimize diet. In terms of the actual um, action itself, depends on the levels. I mean, the higher the levels, the, the worse the, the inflammation would, would be. Um, so I would say, generally speaking, to, to address the, those lifestyle factors and optimize nutrition as well, especially around the zinc, selenium, magnesium, et cetera, as well. And vitamin D, vitamin D is so important. Um, we need an optimal level of, of 100 to 150 and the ranges given in the normal blood test doesn't necessarily match that. Mm. How about postnatal depression and Hashimoto's? Yeah, yes. The thyroiditis is is quite common postpartum. And again, sometimes it it is detected, uh, but often it it can be, you know, misdiagnosed as just a bit of postpartum depression and it's not necessarily diagnosed. So, yeah, it's definitely important to check that afterwards as well. And how can people reduce Hashimoto's flares? You hear about people having Hashimoto's flares. And yeah. uh, I think a person who often talked about this was Sarah Wilson, uh, the woman who wrote the <clears throat> I Quit Sugar series. Yeah, yeah. And she, yeah. she kind of put Hashimoto's in the, in the news and, yeah. you know, she was kind of a champion for no sugar, minimal sugar in managing her yeah. Hashimoto's. Is there anything else you wanted to discuss about Hashimoto's for our listeners? Anything else that's important for them to know? I think it's important to know that anything that's come out of balance can be brought back into balance. Many people, many women are often told, you know, that there's a diagnosis of hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's, here's thyroxine and or, or, or let's just monitor and there's nothing that can be done about it. But that couldn't be further from the truth. There's so much research now on how many lifestyle factors and aspects of nutritional and environmental medicine affect Hashimoto's or other autoimmune conditions as well. So I think it's important to have that hope that it can be improved and it may flare up time to time because of stress and because of life events and so forth. Can I ask menopausal hormone therapy or menopause per se, uh, is there a relationship between the menopause and the thyroid uh, is there an increase in incidence of Hashimoto's thyroiditis? Haven't necessarily seen an increase, but because I guess when it comes to menopause, it's the adrenal glands taking over the role of the ovaries, I guess, in, in producing the, the, the hormones. And we know there's a thyroid adrenal link. From from that perspective, we, we'd want to be addressing the adrenals as well because that, that would affect thyroid. Mm, okay. Adrenals. Yeah. And I yeah. suppose my last question around thyroid uh, is medication and, and knowing what to start someone on. Like I say you, you are going to put them on thyroxin or troxin, whatever you choose, yeah. uh, depending on which country you live in, of course, and where you practice. But yeah. how do you know what to start someone on? Does it depend on their, their symptoms, their weight, their sex? Yeah, so the, the standard – Treatment in the in the guidelines is thyroxine, which is you know it's uh, standardised as one point six micrograms per kilo of body weight, as a as a ballpark. 
but thyroxine would, would be the, the first treatment to consider, um, and then T3 as well. And I think it's fine to trial that, and then if other medication is needed, such as the NDT, then that can be uh, addressed later on as well. If the T3 is very low and the reverse T3 is high, then there is indication to use T3 as monotherapy as well. But I, I would go for the standard treatments first and gauge someone's response and then take it from there. Okay. If you give someone T3, <clears throat> what does it do to their reverse T3 levels? So it will reduce, okay. yeah. Mm. And that's the only way to re reduce the reverse T3 levels, not not the T4, because more T4, again, especially if we haven't addressed those factors with around nutrition and uh, the lifestyle and environmental factors would worsen the, 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 and increase the reverse T3. And I think the other thing we should probably tell our listeners is that there is um, a strong family history of thyroid. Uh, so you know, people often see that their mothers have had an issue with that their sisters and hence the, yeah. the value of asking your family around the dinner table what their family history is. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I think that yeah. people and don't also, discuss that enough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, and again, something that, that we see a lot of, yeah, that there is that um, uh, sort of link there and also around other autoimmune conditions and celiac disease as well because, again, if they may not have celiac disease but if they've got the celiac gene and there's celiac disease in the family, then that would increase their pre uh, predisposition as well. Um, yeah. Amy, do you have any good resources for our listeners in regards to Hashimoto's or for um, information about thyroid per se? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Dr. Isabella Wentz, who goes by a thyroid pharmacist, is, is a great resource, a great website and books and everything. Um Dr. Michael Ruscio has done a lot of um, good research um, and a good book on, on gut health and also in relation to thyroid. Dr. Datis Karazian, uh, the website is Dr. K News. He's, he's a researcher and has done a lot of work on Hashimoto's as well. Um, so they're very good, re reputable resources. Thank you so much. Now, I'll, moving on from Hashimoto <laughs> to <laughs> Dr. Amy Gaja. <laughs> I swear I love Hashimoto. Um, I wanted to ask you, is, is actually is Hashimoto one of your biggest inspirations? And <laughs> now we're moving on to which people have been your biggest inspirations? It sounds like Hashimoto has been. Anybody yeah. else? <laughs> Probably is now, but uh, I think, yeah, it's so many people it's hard to pin them down actually but i think you know the the all-time favorites you know gandhi and mandela and and um yeah yeah but mandela mandela definitely for me i, I haven't read enough about gandhi i should read more about him uh, what yeah, is it about I mean, gandhi that, that you like yeah, it was, i just love the, the quote you know being the change you wish to see in the world and and you know the the principles rooted in non-violence or ahimsa um yeah, yeah, it's those sort of principles. And I think you also said something around, you know, if you point one finger at someone else, you've got three pointing back at yourself. So mm. it really tells you, you know, it tells us about self-reflecting as well. So, yeah, it's hard to know where some of these quotes come from. But I, I, mm. <laughs> so, um, quotes help us get through the day. It's a bit like the memes. Yeah. Our favourite books <laughs> that you could tell us well, about. So many. Um, I think I loved Conversations with God by D Neil Donald Walsh. Um, Robin Sharma's written some fantastic books. Um, I love The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Um, and he's written The Saint, The Serpent, CEO, and um, Man's Search for Meaning, of course, classic mm. by Victor Frankl. Amazing book, that one. Um, and yeah, it's worth a reread, especially in these sort of times. Definitely. And songs that make you happy. Oh, I love. Um, I can see clearly now, and ain't no sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're such a you're such a hippie. <laughs> and Bob Marley, yeah, the Beatles. I love all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and do you have a dream collaboration, Amy? I, you know, I love the idea of one day 
yeah, just having, you know, some acreage and like the sanctuary where there's like a yoga meditation space and, you know, having rescue animals. Yeah, that, I seem to get that vision from time to time. Can't see it in the near future, but maybe, maybe far, far away. How's your yoga going? You tell us about your yoga. You're a yoga teacher. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I'm teaching Kundalini yoga, which is um, it's a style of yoga that's more focused on the breath work, the pranayama, and the meditation. Um, so, yeah, I was uh, I'm currently teaching in, in um, at the Sydney Yoga Collective in Bondi Junction uh, on a Sunday morning, and yeah, it's it's um, yeah, it's it's so nice me able to sort of teach and give and you know it's a lovely way to start a sunday morning and you wear white when you do kundalini yoga is that right you can do mm. although these days people are pretty flexible and yeah yeah okay. but tra- traditionally white because it sort of personifies all the colors and it's you represent purity and oneness and everything as well yeah yeah are there any specific uh, yoga postures for thyroid support yes yeah, so anything so again uh, and, and another point that that would be relevant would be you know what's going on around the neck and, and the C spine and everything as well. So you know in, in, actually in some patients it may be relevant to even see a physio or a chiro or steward depending on on what's going on because that can certainly affect the nerve and the blood supply there. But you know your simple simple yoga postures like you know uh, cow you know that just helps to increase that mobility and movement around the neck. Uh, you know the bridge pose is is quite quite a useful one. So anything that increases that movement around there, you know, neck turns and uh, neck rolls, they can be really helpful as well. So, you know, doing them gently, and certainly if there's any sort of discomfort or any history of anything, then it would be worth looking into that from a uh, you know seeing another practitioner like like a physio or chiro as well, because that can certainly be an important part of the treatment as well. And what are, what are your top tips for being a, a, the best yoga teacher you could be? What what can you share with our listeners? Oh, I think it's important to be authentic and seeing yourself as a conduit for the teachings. I like that conduit for the teachings. Mm. And how about functional medicine? Because you're a functional, very holistic doctor. Um. You know, there aren't many doctors out there who are yoga teachers. Uh, how, you know, in, in, in advising new doctors coming through or aspiring doctors, uh, what can you advise them on get, how to get to where you are? What have you done? Yeah. Have you fo- you yes. followed your path, but you've obviously done other things. Yeah. So I, when I came to Sydney, is when I, I I first came across ACNAM, so the the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine, and that really changed my path, definitely. And then I continued the studying and and sort of to do the fellowship as well, um, and then also then then the fellowship in lifestyle medicine. But ACNAM do um, a primary course, which is um, over four days, or obviously can be done online as well. And that, I think, is a really good starting point for anyone graduating um, and anyone with an interest in, in nutritional and environmental medicine. Um, I remember when I did that course um, many years ago, I, I remember thinking, God, I, I think every doctor should do this. It's it just, it's like, wow, you know, why are we not taught this in medical school? Um, you know, it's like all the nutrition around thyroid and everything. I'm, I'm not sure if I just missed those lectures or, or not. No, because then med school would need to be 20 years long, wouldn't it? <laughs> that's why. <laughs> yeah. That's so, why, you know, yeah, medicine is ongoing learning, isn't it? You, you finish yes. med school, but you know nothing. I keep telling the med students yes. at Sydney Uni, you know nothing when you finish med school. Just remember that. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's just like a baseline and then, um, yeah, and then and the, the primary course done by academia, you know, it, just has a look at you know uh, nutritional environmental medicine in you know in women's health in children's health in um, gut health so it just gives a nice overview for I think any doctor but especially anyone who's going into general practice um, and obviously then you know if people want to take it further they can do more modules and just do the modules that they're interested in like women's health or pediatrics um, and then take it to a fellowship if they want to uh, there's also IFM which is the Institute of Functional Medicine based in the US um, and they also do uh, an equivalent primary type of course as well. And uh, again, further modules if, if they want to do that. But even, even either of those initial 
courses would be a really good um, education, a good starting point. And then, of course, your book when it comes out, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That'll Thank be next year. Next year. year. 2021? Yes. Yes, definitely. Awesome. Looking yeah. forward to reading it, Amy, and thank you so much for speaking to us today about Hashimoto's thyroiditis. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Dr. Sash. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Dr. Amy Gajar. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel, and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview, or books for us to read and share. Until next time, stay fanny tabulous. <laughs>